John chapter 12. Let me just give you the, briefly the setting here. And if you'll stand, please. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> I'm going to begin reading with verse number 9, but let me give you a little bit of details here first. This is after the raising of Lazarus. Jesus, after the raising of Lazarus, because of the plot to kill him, which is recorded there in the verses 45 and following of the 11th chapter, went into the uh, wilderness region there to the north and east called Ephraim. And there he remained until the, he was given this dinner to honor him uh, there in uh, the 12th chapter, which uh, occurred six days before the Passover. And so Jesus actually went back to Jerusalem for that, for the Passover, because he's going to die on Passover. But he's honored there uh, by the family of Lazarus in the first verses of chapter 12. And then we come to verse number 9, and that's where we're going to begin here with the plot here to kill Lazarus. When the, lar when the large crowd of Jews, notice Jews, and these are the people, the citizens of Judea, the citizens of Jerusalem, learned that Jesus was there, having returned there from Ephraim, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They were, doesn't really tell us here the nature of their faith, but they were becoming followers of Jesus, and that upset them. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, notice there's a difference. Verse 9 has a large crowd of Jews who had witnessed the uh, <clears throat> resurrection of Lazarus, and now we have a large crowd that had come to the feast. So these are visitors uh, and probably many of those in verse 9 as well, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey, a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that he heard he had done this, they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said one to another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast 
were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, what we have here is the Feast of Passover. And from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus spoke of his purpose to die. He would be taken by the Jewish authorities, tried, turned over to the Romans for that purpose. But then he would rise from the dead, be raised from the dead. His disciples then did not, it says, did not understand this. It's interesting, they, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, when Jesus spoke of his destroying the temple and raising it up in three days, it says they did not understand this. So they, these fellows need some understanding too. And uh, I don't think it means, you know, you, a casual reading of it there, you think, well, they didn't understand anything. No, they understood a lot. But some specific things here they don't understand. And I think what we have here, first of all, in the, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, they didn't understand his resurrection. But here they do not understand his purpose to go to the cross and die, although he's told them again and again and again. And you see that when uh, some of them came to him and asked, that when he established his kingdom, they could sit on the right and the left hand. What they don't understand is that the, they, like many of the Jews, that Jesus was not offering himself now to overthrow the Gentiles and establish the kingdom of God. He's going to establish the kingdom of God, but not in a way which they understood. They didn't understand this. And they had another view of his mission. That he would establish David's throne in an earthly kingdom. But God's plan was the cross. Cross does not represent only the death of Jesus. It defines, I believe, the exodus of the king. Ron talked about the stories of the Old Testament. Now the stories of the Old Testament... uh, really point to the truths that are set forth in the gospel and around the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find the same thing with the exodus of Israel from Egypt. It is clearly a picture of salvation and of God's delivering his people out of bondage into liberty and into the kingdom. And uh, that's the same process we go through. We are delivered out of the bondage of sin, out of the captivity of sin, into the liberty of grace, and eventually into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, His dear Son. And so here is pictured again the exodus of the King. Uh, We're not going to go through what Jesus hasn't already gone through. In, in many respects. And the cross is the part of that process by which the Lord 
leads the redeemed nation out of the bondage of sin and Satan's service into the glorious kingdom of God. And this exodus then involves three things. But before I get into those those three things here for a second, let me back up for a second and emphasize something to you. Somebody says, well, Christ went to the cross. We don't go to the cross. Oh, no, we went with him to the cross. Not only do we go with him to the cross, but we bear the cross in our lives. He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And cross is not just a hard time. It's not just a burden that God puts on you. It's not just your lack of good health or maybe a family member that opposes you or maybe an enemy at work. No. The cross is an intentional desire to die to self to live to Him. It's sacrificing self for the glory of God, to do the will of God. So there are three things about this exodus here by way of introduction. The first is the ransom of a people from the slavery of sin while yet in the world. This, and this is symbolized by Egypt. And the picture here in the, of Passover, and by the way, see, that's how they left Egypt. Through They had the Passover. And then the next morning they departed. And this and in this Passover there's a sacrifice made and the application of blood. So we read there in Exodus chapter twelve, verses twenty one to twenty three, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb, and take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. See, this is what the cross does. When the judgment of God falls upon the heathen, the sinning, sinful world, the people of God are protected because of the application of the blood. And in this case, it's the blood of Christ. And so we read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. His blood is placed upon our doorposts, as it were. So the second thing here is this is the securing of the everlasting salvation of the people of God's people. Christ's blood provides forgiveness. Christ's blood releases us from the guilt of sin and from the fear of judgment. We have no longer to face the wrath of God. But we're not saved from ourselves yet. God wants to save us from Himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, and then He wants to save us from ourselves. This 
everlasting salvation of the people of God, which was obtained at the cross, is now worked out through sanctification unto holiness. Why doesn't Jesus just take us to heaven when we get saved? When we become a child of God, why doesn't He just immediately take us to glory? Because He wants to take us through the wilderness first. We need that wilderness wandering experience where, whereby the, through the work of the Holy Spirit we are purged from the dominion of indwelling sin. And this in, then involves testing and, and discipline to produce trust and confidence in the Savior. And the key evidence of this work in us is faithfulness. Faithfulness in His Word, faithfulness to His church, faithfulness to His witness, faithfulness to consistent Christian living, faithfulness to the will of God. No matter how difficult the circumstances. Then we have the third, which is the establishment of, a, of eternal victory through the submission and obedience to, the, to a rightful king. And this is pictured in the conquest and the settling of the promised land, the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. And he is right now ruling. And all who follow him must give up all rights to themselves and submit and surrender to King Jesus. That brings us then to, first of all, I want to just give us a brief ex exposition of the passage there that we have just read. First of all, the popular pursuit of Jesus. We read about the large crowds, the large crowds of the Jews that went to find Jesus who had heard about his raising of Lazarus, the people of Jerusalem, the large crowd of the Jews. And uh, they went to Bethany there to see Jesus, to report that, uh, due to the report that he had returned from Ephraim. And doubtless, many were curious also to see Lazarus, which then provoked the leaders to say, we got to get rid of him too. He's got to go. This uh, dinner that, that was given in his honor there in the, in the first verses of the 12th chapter, uh, which, uh, interestingly, the, uh, the Synoptic Gospels put after the, the triumphal entry. John puts it before the triumphal entry. But John's purpose here is to show a, a flow of thought or a, a throw of, flow of action here through the thinking of people. And so uh, John states here that this large crowd comes out to meet him on because of their under, their curiosity to see Jesus and Lazarus, and so then in the opinion of the priests, it provided an opportunity for many to put their faith in Jesus. You see how many are following Jesus, and this provoked the priests and the Pharisees to plot his death and the death of Lazarus as well. While the rulers feared the people's enthusiastic reception of Jesus' person due to his signs and miracles, remember here that the true, that true faith must be grounded 
on the reception of Jesus, words. A lot of Christians that are looking for signs. They want to see miraculous work. I want to see God do something marvelous and mysterious and powerful so that I can really believe in Him. No, no, no. Jesus wants you to hear His words and believe in Him through them, not His signs. Signs were important because they proved His person. The Old Testament said that your Messiah would come and when he came, he would his the the telltale evidence of his being there would be the signs that he did, but they were there to point to his person so that we would listen to his words. And this, I really think, is the whole reason for the raising of Lazarus was to incite many to truly seek out and to follow Jesus. This moved then from religion controlled by the Pharisees, the authorities, to real trust in Jesus was considered a danger to, the, to those authorities. And the provocation was only increased by Jesus' next move. This is why we're persecuted. The, uh, the, the authorities of this world want allegiance to them, not Jesus. They can't figure out that the best citizens are those who follow Jesus first. Now that brings us then to the triumphal entry. And I'm not going to expound a whole lot on, on the triumphal entry itself, but, but that's one of the few events in the life of Jesus that's covered by all four Gospels. Jesus, or excuse me, John here is unique in some details. Verse 12, for example, uh, indicates that the event occurred the next day. And uh, the next day being after, I think, the day that the, that the uh, Pharisees or the, Sadducee, the, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees meeting together, decided to put Lazarus to death as well. So the next day, and uh, and uh, it is believed that that day was Sunday of the Passion Week. I think later I may address that again because I personally have some question about that, but I, I'll I'll leave that for for later here. And but that's the reason why we celebrate Palm Sunday. Preparations were well underway for the celebration of the Passover, which would occur later. We're in the Passion Week now and this large crowd that had gathered included many pilgrims that came to the feast and it's estimated that there were as many as two and a half million people in Jerusalem for that celebration that's a lot of people two and a half million and many of them were Galileans who had come because they were already familiar with Jesus ministry Verse 13 then records that the crowd took palm branches. And this has caused some to uh, raise questions. They say, wait a minute, now here 
Uh, nowhere in the Old Testament is there any indication that palm branches were to be used at Passover. But there is clear indication that they were to be used at the Feast of Booths that occurred six months before then. So is there some confusion here? Well, that's because a lot of people are looking for contradictions and they don't understand everything. But here's the, here's the fact. The Jews were uh, uh, well acquainted with palm branches because they had really become the national symbol of the nation. Why? It harks back to the Maccabean, the Maccabeans and their uh, getting rid of, the, of the, uh, the Syrians. And then rededicating the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes had sacrificed a sow on the altar. And then the rededication of that temple that occurred, the, the Maccabean revolt occurred in 141 B.C. and the rededication of the temple in 164 B.C. So this, during this intertestamental period, palm branches were, were frequently used to celebrate that event. Not just at the Feast of Booze, but throughout the, the year. And uh, so here, they're going to be used. And God is uh, arranging all this because he has a reason. Now they're, gonna, they're going to officially welcome the Messiah. So we have the, then the understanding of this crowd. They cried out. Listen to what they said. After taking the palm branches and they, they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna. First of all, let's notice that. Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew, Hosianna, Hosianna, which means give salvation now. And if we understand salvation as deliverance. So here they are requesting that Messiah deliver them from what? Sin? No. Not in this case. They're expecting Messiah to deliver them from the Romans. From Gentile domination and oppression. Give salvation now. And every Jew was familiar with this expression of plea because it comes from Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us, we pray, O Lord. This was followed then by the phrase, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, when Psalm 118 was first used in Israel, the he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was generally understood to be those who came to Jerusalem to worship the Lord in the temple. This was a psalm of ascent. There's several psalms of ascent. Psalm 118 is the beginning, I think, that goes through us. Uh, I mean, is the last one. Uh, there's several others before that. But this is the last one. But here's an interesting thing. The Jews had 
come to understand the he not just to refer to to pilgrims who came to worship and were welcomed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to worship. But they began to understand it to have messianic implications. So to them the he then became a welcome of the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this was obviously the understanding of the Jews here because they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And this is built on the understanding, for example, the Midrash. The Midrash is a rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament. This rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament clearly interprets the phrase to be messianic. For it says, the one who comes is the Messiah. Midrash. Tehillim 244a. So clearly the people also understood what they were saying. Then, But here's the, here's the interesting thing. Their expectation and God's Purpose is now divided. And here's, here's how. Listen to this. What the people expect and what the Lord presented, they're different. How? The synoptics include much more about the event here than does John. But John is focusing on this. And that this is what we want to see. What must be noted is that the event clearly fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And it's quoted. Let me read that prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is why John tells us that Jesus sought out a donkey, a colt donkey to ride. Now what does that signify? This is the point. And here is the, here is the contrast. Jesus didn't ride a horse. Why? Horse is a war symbol. Revelation 19 verse 11 tells us that when Jesus comes back again, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and makes war. Revelation 19:11. But in this account, he rides a donkey. Why? When kings came to visit riding a donkey, they were telling those to whom they're coming, I'm coming in peace. And also his demeanor is described here as humble and gentle. Not a warrior. Not coming to make war. Why? Because he's coming to bring salvation. Not deliverance 
from Israel's enemies, but deliverance from Israel's real enemy, God. So that they may have peace with God. The crowd was mistaken. This was not a messianic offering in the sense that they understood it was a, the Prince of Peace coming. The Synoptic Gospels all record that upon entering J Jerusalem, Jesus looked around and then returned to Bethany. He didn't do anything. He just turned around and returned to Bethany. But then the next day, we find him coming again. Uh, there's the cursing of the fig tree, and uh, then he comes and to a high place overlooking Jerusalem, and he, the scriptures tells us there in Luke 19, let me read that for you, verses 41 to 44, would, Jesus said, would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Isn't that interesting? See, Jesus knew that judgment was to come and, and that would be by His hand because of their rejection of Him. But Jesus entered the temple and then the next thing that happens is that Jesus enters the temple area and we find the second cleansing of the temple, the first one occurring in the beginning of John. John doesn't record this one at all, but the synoptics do. But notice what uh, happened. He goes in and he uh, drives out the, those who bought and sold and overturns the tables of the money lenders. And this, or changers, the money changers, Then this activity then took place in the court of the Gentiles. And it is here that Jesus proclaims, and listen to this, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, here's the interesting thing. This bazaar was set up by the high priest and his uh, family as a money-making proposition. Where? In the court of the Gentiles, which was snubbing them, if you please. Was telling them, you have no place in this temple. This is for Jews and Jews only. So we're setting up our bazaar here, so you have no place. But what did Jesus say? My father's house, you made my father's house a den of thieves. It should be a house of prayer for what? All nations. Showing God's purpose in salvation would go to the ends of the earth. And again, this focuses on the universal intention of the gospel to include Gentiles. And then please note here John's sign 
that the hour had come, which is in verses 20 through 26. But what, what do we have? We have some Greeks coming and saying, Sir, to Philip and saying, we would see Jesus. You see? See how John's doing this? And I'm, I'm going to address that later too here. Uh, but now, notice another important note there from Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9, 9 is quoted in uh, John here, but Zechariah 9, 10 that follows we need to look at. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, this Messiah is coming. But he's going to end the wars and he's going to reign in peace and his rule will be worldwide. And that's what we have with Jesus. So simply put, the king has come to restore the kingdom and restore it to its rightful sovereign. And this process is pictured in the second psalm. Let me just, I don't want to deal with the second. I'm not even going to read it. I'm just going to share here. There's five points in that psalm. The rebellion of the, the rebellion is exerted. Where, why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? That's the first three verses. Then we have the response of the king. He laughs. and says, I put my, I've decreed the decree. Thou art my son, and this day have I begotten thee. Then the, re, the restoration pronounced. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And then the results promised. He's going to rule and reign. And then the rebels are warned. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish from the way. And then we it's closed here with verse number 12. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now let me quickly then tie this second psalm here to the passage before us and and draw a few conclusions here. First of all, the problem is stated in Psalm 2 is of a rebellion. The rebellion of the sinful heart. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2.3 The sovereign authority of Adonai is currently inoperative. Jesus is sitting king, but he's not being obeyed. And why? Because of the reign of the will. <coughs> there are so many people who want to talk about free will. How, much, how important is free will? God doesn't make us do anything. We have free will. It's my, it's my choice to do what I want to do. That's the problem. Will is an expression of self. It is, I want to be my own king. I want Jesus to take care of me. I want him to meet my needs. I want him to provide for me a nice life in a smooth and easy way. I want him to give me health and happiness. 
I want him to provide for my family, but I don't want him to tell me what to do. I make that choice myself. I will. I will. So we have in, in Luke 19, verse 14, we will not have this man to reign over us. However, everyone has to have a ruler. So we adopt a false authority. The will can be exercised only on the basis of reason. What I think. Well, I think... Well, it's my it's it's my understanding the way I understand it the guy the way I think it through reason see whatever one chooses he does because something influences and motivates his choices it should be I will because the Lord wills I will because the Lord will. I want my will to correlate with his, to coincide with it, to be subject, subject to it. Rather, it is I will because I wish. The deception here is that sinners think they are autonomous. Free to make their own choices, but all are enslaved to fickle imperfect desires of the flesh and the mind and the flesh and the mind are ruled by the god of this world the one who energizes the children of disobedience according to ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 this sin enslaved will then cannot obey god it cannot obey god <clears throat> thus the rightful king is dethroned and his will is spurned and in doing so all have abandoned the true principle of life under the mastery of sin, none is able to do anything but sin. Under sin's penalty then and paralysis, there's no recourse. Sin committed cannot be undone, neither by remorse nor by promised amendment. Oh, I know I did wrong, but I'll do better. Oh yeah? Sowing demands reaping of a harvest and you sow to the flesh you will of the flesh reap corruption and like the children of Israel in Egypt one can only produce his tale of bricks we're under slavery so the response of God to fix the problem Psalm 2.6 I have set my king on Zion my holy hill so the triumph entry here is what fulfills this purpose of the Lord. Jesus did not come to present himself to Israel as if they would have him. Rather, Jesus presented himself as the king of his people. His people. Bringing their deliverance from, from bondage of self and sin. And the people cried, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name, that is the authority of the Lord, even the king of Israel. What they said with their mouths, they did not understand with their hearts. And it is not going to be long before the same crowd is going to be saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! The same crowd. When Pilate asked 
First of all, when when Pilate put uh, uh, the sign on the cross, this is the king of the Jews. I think God prompted him to do that. And they said, don't do that. We don't recognize him as the king of the Jews. Oh, but Pilate said, he is your king. When I ask about... Uh, when, G- uh, when Pilate asked Jesus about his kingdom, he replied, My kingdom, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom. He is a king. And he has a kingdom. But it's not of this world. John eighteen thirty six. To establish his kingdom, Jesus could do nothing but go to the cross. Pilate said to, G- to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. John 19, 14 through 16. But ah, Psalm 2, 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then will he speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What appeared to be a defeat was really the fulfillment of a sovereign, eternal decree that by wicked hands, Jesus would be taken and crucified as the Lord of glory so that God might again raise him up from the dead. And David, being a prophet, knowing, the scripture says, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that uh, he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That's what Peter said there in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. And again, Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of the Father, And David again testifies so in Psalm 110 when he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's quoted in Acts 2, 34 and 35. Jesus identified himself with the people in the penalty and the paralysis of sin in order to bring his people into identification with him and pardon and freedom of righteousness. He broke the will of Pharaoh, led his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the promised land, his kingdom. Jesus is Moses the prophet, Joshua the conqueror, and David the king all rolled up into one. The whole reason that Israel, the nation, failed to recognize the intention of God fully was that God's purpose in Israel His experience was only a type and shadow of the real exodus under King Jesus. So what is the real exodus? Well, we have in Hebrews 11, Joseph prophesying. He made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Hebrews 11, verse 22. And the word that's translated there. Departing is the word exodus. To exit. Exodus. In Luke's account of the transfiguration, we have another interesting parallel. And behold, there talked with him two men, 
which were who? Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he would accomplish in Jerusalem. That's Luke 9, 30 and 31. The newer translations have it. His exodus, and this is the New American Standard, <clears throat> translating it here, his exodus that he was going, his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 11.22. And behold, there talked with him two men, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Moses, I think here, represents Israel and its exodus from Egypt. And Elijah here represents Israel's failure and apostasy in the kingdom. These two. The one who brought about the exodus and the one who judged the apostasy. Spoke of Jesus' exodus, the real exodus, not merely from slavery to Pharaoh, but from the shackles of sin. And it's interesting that Peter, James, and John, who were sleeping then, suddenly awakened to see Jesus with Moses and Elijah. <clears throat> and Peter, confused and shocked, blunders his suggestion that the booths should be constructed for each of them. The Feast of Booths, remember? The booths represent the wilderness wanderings to be, to be commemorated at the Feast of Tabernacles which then speaks of the kingdom. Peter's mistake was corrected by the Father himself from the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And it's implied only. You hear Him only. Then they saw none but Jesus. The real exodus and the real kingdom belong to Jesus alone. Are you in it? Are you in it? Let me close. <clears throat> the Passover, the wilderness, and the conquest are three parts of God's meaning of freeing His people from the slavery of sin. They would do well to obey the warning of Psalm 2, 10-12. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Are you taking refuge in Him? Are you taking refuge in Him? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are grateful for Your mercies. We're grateful for the scriptures. Oh, how we love the Word of God. How it is so clear in informing us of our obligations and expectations and of Your grace and power and provision. Lord, we ask that these two might meet in the humbling and repentance of the sinner and the salvation of his soul. Father, meet that need today. I pray for any here, anyone here who 
is not really truly born from above. Bring them to yourself. And Lord, the rest of us, may we understand that to our, our role in this wilderness wandering, for we are but strangers and pilgrims in the earth, looking for the kingdom. Lord, uh, that our rule here is to do your will. As we are taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For we know that only those who do the will of God abide forever. We ask that this might be true of us in Jesus' name. Amen.